This morning, though, I am going to be uh, bringing you God's word from from Ephesians chapter four. But before I get into that, I want to open us up with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you today that you are the God over this universe and that you have loved us. And it is only because you have loved us that we are able to love it all. And so this weekend, as we have celebrated as a church, as a family, the love that you have have given to Chad and Holly for each other, Lord, uh, we praise your name for that. We know that that is not possible apart from you. Father, we come humbly before you this morning as we open your word and we ask that you would speak to us through the reading of your word, that you would show us the truth that is in your word and show us how as we leave here this morning, we could walk worthy of the calling that you have given us, how we could walk worthy of the gospel, Lord. Father, we know that that we cannot do it apart from you and we need your power and your strength in our lives to be able to do this. So we ask this morning as a church, we ask as we come together that you would fill us with your presence, that you would do exactly as your word has promised, and that you would lead us in all understanding, that you would guide each and every one of our steps, because we know, Father, that you have ordained our steps even beforehand. Father, I pray that as we go throughout the week, we would see the good works that you have prepared for us, that we would walk in them. And that we would not shy away from them or turn away from them, but we would stand boldly in our faith and do the things that you would have us to do. I pray that we would do it with humility and gentleness, striving to maintain unity in all that we do. Father, I pray this morning that as we share your word together, that you would just lead us to that understanding. Father, I ask for your blessing on your words this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're... We're going to pick up right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And it's really divided into two very unique and distinct parts. The first three chapters of the book primarily deal with theology or doctrine. And then in chapter 4, Paul shifts from theology to practice. And so you have this shift where we're going to pick up today from, from duty to doctrine. A shift from principle to practice or position to behavior. Where we're picking up today is where Paul shifts and says, this is how you live out the truth that I have just told you in the first three chapters. This is what your life should look like because of this truth. And we see at the beginning of these verses, which we'll read in just a second, that it starts with this word, therefore. And we know that anytime we see that, it should connect us back to what came before this. That Paul is going to use the the ideas that he has set up and connect them to the ideas that he is about to expound upon. And this word, therefore, in our context today, connects these first several verses of Ephesians chapter 4 all the way back to really all of the first three chapters of Ephesians. So it's not just let's back up a couple verses, but we need to look at the entire doctrine that Paul unfolds throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians. And in those first three chapters, he lays out really a sixfold doctrine of the church. Now, the sixfold doctrine, I'm not going to cover all of it. We're not going to talk about all three chapters and then get into the sermon. We don't have time for that. I told you it would be twice as long as my line yesterday, um, but not quite that long. But in these first three chapters, he 
unfolds the sixfold doctrine of the church. And I really quickly just want to touch on each of these because we need to understand where Paul is coming from to understand why it is that he's saying what he's saying. So the first thing that we see as we read through Ephesians is that the church is predestined in Christ. We see this in verses 3 through 6 in the first chapter. The church is predestined in Christ, but they are also redeemed in Christ. So you have the church predestined in Christ and then redeemed in Christ. Paul follows this up in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, with the idea that the church has an inheritance in Christ. The church has an inheritance in Christ. And then he finishes off chapter 1 saying that the church is resourced in Christ. So we are predestined in Christ, redeemed in Christ. As a church, we are we have an inheritance in Christ and we are resourced in Christ. And then in chapter 2, he starts off talking about how the church has a new life in Christ. The first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul lays out this new life that the church has in Christ. And I preached on this a few months ago, how we were dead in our trespasses, but God being rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. This was our, our testimony that we have. And this is something that the church at large has because Jesus Christ has taken the church from death and brought it to life. And the last aspect of this takes up the biggest part of the first three chapters, and it's that the church is united in Christ. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, going through verse 13 of chapter 3. The church is united in Christ. And there's a common theme that is interwoven here in this sixfold doctrine of the church. And I hope that you can see it there on the screen. But it's that all of these things are in Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He's the cornerstone of what the church is built upon. And actually, the second half of chapter 2 in Ephesians, you see Paul build upon this analogy that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, and we as believers are being built up into the church. And all of this is through Jesus Christ. And it's all because we are united in Christ. And because we are united in Christ, because we are redeemed in Christ, because we have new life in Christ, Paul says these words at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity that the Spirit in the bond of unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This term, walk worthy, is important for us, especially today as we're studying this, what it means to walk worthy. And it's used at least four other times, or some manner of walk worthy is used at least four other times in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we hear, walk worthy, or walk in a worthy manner of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Philippians 1.27 uses a little bit of a different language, but the same idea. It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And then Ephesians 4.1, our, our verse that we're really building upon today, says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. We see that this idea to walk worthy, to walk in a worthy manner of the Lord, of the gospel, of your calling, is not a one-time call or a one-time idea that is in the Scriptures. But over and over again through the New Testament, we are called to walk worthy. So we really need to know and understand what this means. What does it mean to walk worthy? What does that mean? Well, in the New Testament, the term walk is almost exclusively used pertaining to the Christian life. Outside of the times where it's a physical one foot in front of the other walk, almost exclusively we see this idea that we are talking about the conduct of a Christian. Their daily living, how they conduct themselves, how they go about their business. It's used by several different New Testament authors. We see in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle John says that we should not walk in darkness. We should not walk in darkness. He does not mean a physical walk into darkness. He doesn't mean don't go outside at night when it's dark. Don't go into a dark room. That's not what John is talking about. The Apostle John is saying, do not walk in darkness. He's saying, do not walk ignorant of divine truth. That in your daily lives, as you walk, as you conduct yourselves, you should be doing that in light of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. This is the walk that we're talking about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're told that our walk should not be characterized by craftiness or cunning. Our conduct should not be characterized by those things. That would not be good. In Colossians chapter 3, we're told not to walk in our own, our old ways. Things such as sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. All of the things that Pastor Greg preached about last week, we are told do not walk in those old ways. Do not conduct yourselves and live your life according to those old things, but instead we live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our walk has to do with our daily living. For most of us, Sunday morning is the easiest time that, it, that we have in our lives to come here and to, to walk and live according to the Gospel. It's really easy to live out our faith Sunday morning in the church. Probably the easiest time that you're going to have. When you come here, some of us may not have an easy time to focus our hearts on worshiping and praising God. But if it's hard for you to do here, it's going to be even harder when you leave this building. But as we see in the New Testament that we are to walk worthy of the Gospel, that is beyond these walls. It's beyond what we do here Sunday morning. It's beyond a worship service one day a week. We have to learn how we can fill this Monday to Sunday gap. This Monday to Sunday gap. Now, what am I talking about when I say Monday to Sunday gap? This is the time from when you leave here Sunday morning until the time that you come back next week for worship. The time when life was really easy to live worthy of the gospel. Sunday morning for the worship service until the time that you come back, there's a, a gap of time in between. And that time needs to be used to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worthy of the calling for which you have been called, it says in Ephesians 4, chapter 1. 
that's hard to do once you leave here. It's hard to do as we leave the church. And the church of old knew that this was a hard thing to do. They knew that there was a gap of time that existed in which a Christian will struggle to live a life of faith. So the church many, many years ago decided we're going to fix this. We're going to give the believer something to do outside of Sunday morning that is going to re-energize and recharge their faith. So let's do a Sunday morning worship service and then Sunday night we'll have a Bible study. We'll bring everyone back here. We'll give them something else to do. We'll have a Bible study. And they do that for a while. And then they said, you know what? There's still this big gap of time. Let's do a midweek recharge. Let's bring all the Christians back in here on Wednesday night, re-energize and recharge their faith on Wednesday to help close this Monday to Sunday gap. And they said, you know what? There's still this big gap of time. Let's do something else. Let's do a whole bunch of women's Bible studies every day of the week. Let's do men's fellowships all the time. Let's do a children's program on this night and a youth program on this night. Let's fill every night of the calendar with something to do at church so we can, as a church, close this gap of time between when they leave here Sunday morning and when they come back the following week. Now, there's nothing wrong with this per se. Some churches still do it. And it works well for some churches. But to be completely honest in our current world and our current generation that is coming up, this doesn't work. This doesn't work because honestly, people don't have the time that they had 50 years ago. Most households in America are dual income households. That means mom and dad are both at work all day. That means mom and dad both have to go to work to make a living. And beyond that, you have professional development. You have kids involved in everything that they could be involved in because every parent wants their kids to have the best life possible. That's what we do. We're parents. We love our kids. Why would we deny them anything? And before we know it, at the end of the week, there's no time for anything. Gretchen and I used to talk about this a lot as when our kids were young and we would see our friends with older kids running ragged, taking their kids to everything. They were involved in everything. And Gretchen and I would always look at each other from our high horse and say, this will never be us. We will never do that. And then our kids have grown up. And I love my kids. I wish they were in here right now. Um, our kids have grown up, and we've got one who, who loves band. And he's in the school band, and it requires band practice two days a week, and it has rehearsals, and it has concerts, and it has parades. And we're going to that every time that we can. But we don't just have one kid, so we've got another kid who loves dance. And so we take her to her dance rehearsals and the recitals and all of the things that go along with that. But we don't just have two kids, we have three. And we have another kid who likes to play soccer. And soccer, for some reason, in second grade, they have two practices a week and one or two games every weekend. And I don't understand it whatsoever. But at the end of the week, Gretchen and I look at each other and we say, where did the week go? Where did the month go? We don't have time to do everything. All of those things that we said we would never do, we didn't set out to do them. They just happened. And at the end of the week, we don't have time for a something every night of the week. Let alone have any margin, any space left on the edge of the paper where Gretchen and I can have time alone with just her and I. Or time alone for just our family because we're constantly running and constantly doing things. This is the mark of the generation that we're in right now. This is what it looks like. And those of you who are in here, parents with young children, don't say it won't be you. 
I tried so hard that it wouldn't be me. And it did. It happened. And here we are, and we don't have any time to do these things. And the church has started to realize this. The church has said, we are running our people just crazy with all of these things to do. Because honestly, when we open the doors of the church, there are people who say the doors are open. We need to be there. We're killing our people. We're removing any time that they may have had to be a family. We're removing the responsibility of the father to lead his family spiritually by saying, you know what? You don't have time for that? Just come to the church. We'll take care of it. And so churches have started to scale back and said, you know what? We're not going to close this Monday to Sunday gap for the people by giving them more and more stuff to do. But that doesn't exempt us as a church from helping and resourcing our families. And helping and resourcing our families to close this gap and to learn how to live a life of faith Monday morning when they go into the workplace. Monday morning when they go to whatever it is that they do, whatever hobby they're going to. As students go to school, as a church, we need to be training and equipping our people to close this gap and to live a life of faith every day of the week, not just Sunday morning. We see in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Our responsibility as pastors, as elders, as teachers, as disciplers, those people who are investing in others, is to train them up and to equip them for the work of the ministry in every aspect of their life. Paul does not say equip them for work inside the church building and don't worry about the rest. Ministry happens outside of the walls of the church because honestly, the church is not this building. The church is the are the people here. So we have to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. And it's a good thing for us that the Bible gives us some help on how to do this. It doesn't just say go and do it, figure it out on your own. God has told us that we can do this. He's given us what we need to be able to train up these generations of people, to train them up, to train up believers to do the ministry. But we have to to read it. We have to study it. We have to live it out. We have to know what it means in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to know what it means to live a life that is a life of spiritual sacrifice. Giving our bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord. Giving our lives, our daily conduct, what we do each and every day. This is what we need to know. We need to know what it means to have our minds transformed and renewed. We see that our goal is to learn what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. Worthy of His calling. Worthy of the Gospel. In Colossians 1.10, I've already read this verse. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The goal of walking worthy, the goal of walking worthy of the Gospel of our Lord is that we would please Him in all respects. We don't do it for us. We don't do it so that we look good. We don't do it to point back to First Baptist Church and say that's a great church that you should go to. We walk worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects of our lives. But we know that the Scriptures say in Hebrews 11 that it, without faith it is impossible to please God. That tells us that a walk worthy, a life that is lived worthy of the Gospel is a life of faith. Because if we're walking worthy to please God, and you can't please God without faith, your walk must be characterized by your faith. It must be lived out in every aspect of our life. We need to know what it looks like to have faith when we leave here Sunday after church. When we go to whatever appointment it is we have this week, when we encounter people in the restaurants, our faith should be evident to them. So to make this sermon less of an ought to and more of a how to, we get to look at how Paul tells us some of this is possible. Because Paul doesn't just say this is what you should do. He says this is how you should do it. And we get to look at how to walk worthy. We see in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, three different ways that can contribute to a life of faith. A walk that is worthy of the calling for which the Lord has called us to. And as we discuss these things, we need to remember that these are not checklist items. The things that we're going to discuss are not things that we look at and say, okay, we can check that off the block. Yep, I've done that today. These are characteristics of what our life should look like. These are the things that people should look at us and say, yes, that characterizes the walk of this person. These are attitudes, not actions. This is a lifestyle that we are talking about. That's why I said that when we talk about walking worthy, this is a characterization of our life, of our daily conduct, of the things that we do. And these are are ways that we are going to close this Monday to Sunday gap. And they all take faith. The first thing that Paul says that we can do in this is to walk with humility and gentleness. Now, Paul uses these two characteristics together. He puts them together because, honestly, he has to in the first century audience that he's speaking to. You see, for us today, we know or at least have a general idea of what it means to be humble. We understand when Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, we have a grasp on what that means. We may not live it out all the time. We may not walk humble all the time, but we at least know or have an idea of what that means. In Ephesus, as Paul is writing this letter, it was completely different. For them, humility was a derogatory term. Humility was equated with shame, and they lived in a shame-based culture. And in their culture, it says the worst possible thing that you could do is bring shame upon your family. And to be humble is to be shameful. Our culture today may not be shame-based. There are some shame-based cultures left in this world, especially in the Eastern world. Our culture, however, is not shame-based. 
We don't work in our culture that way. However, humility still seems to be a distinctly Christian term. Because you don't hear about humility very often outside of the church. Because people really think more highly of themselves than they ought to. One of the greatest works of of leadership on how to be a great leader is Good to Great by Jim Collins. In this book, Jim Collins sets out to study what makes a great leader great. He says there are plenty of good leaders out there. But what makes a truly great leader great? And when he looked for a great leader, he looked for leaders of organizations that for 15 years led their organization beyond their projected earnings. He said, these are great leaders. 15 years of that. And in studying this, he found that one of the characteristics of a truly great leader was that they were humble. A humble leader tended to be a great leader. A team from the ancient history department at Macquarie University, a secular university, read this and said, I wonder why that is. I wonder why humility makes somebody great. And when did that even start? And so they said, we're the ancient history department. Let's study of when when humility became something to be desired rather than something to be looked down upon. And through all of their study, remember a secular university they found that humility became something of a virtue with the death of Jesus Christ. A secular university looks at Jesus through a historical lens, not a religious lens. They look at the death of Jesus through the historical fact, not through the Bible. And they say it is with His death on the cross, the most humiliating death a person could die, on full public display for everybody to see. It is with that one ancient historical event that humility became something to be desired rather than something to be shameful. A secular university said Jesus Christ taught about humility in His life. He modeled humility in His life. But it wasn't until His death that the world decided that their idea of greatness was highly flawed. Because Jesus Christ laid down His life in the most humble manner possible. And yet it was the greatest way possible for Him to do it. A secular university looks at this and studies and said, this is when it happened. It's a humility we need to strive to have. In our daily lives, we need to be humble. And we need to be gentle. To do that, it requires faith. It requires faith in God to be truly humble. To count others as more important than ourselves. To put others' needs before our own. We have to have faith. When you want to make sure that your neighbors are cared for and provided for, just because they're your neighbors and you love them, that takes faith. Our humility is not about us. Our humility is about God. It's about realizing that people are created by God and that we were all created on the same plane. We're all on the same page. That God created each and every one of us. Our goal is not to boast in our humility. God knew that we were prone to do that. That's why when He gives us grace, He says, I'm going to give this to you freely because I know you're prone to boast. He says, here, you can have it. You didn't do anything for this, it's yours. 
With humility comes gentleness. As we think of others before ourselves, gentleness is going to come naturally. But for the first century audience that's hearing this, gentleness would be required for humility. Because remember, humility was a bad thing for this first century audience. For us, humility is the opposite of pride. For them, the opposite of humility would be dishonor. To be, or to be humble would be to dishonor their family. So the opposite would be honor. To be humble, they were giving up honor. Dishonoring themselves. Paul is adding gentleness to this to show the people in Ephesus that he's not talking about weakness. He's talking about a willingness to hold back their power and their prestige in service of others. That is what the gentleness is that he's talking about. John Dixon, um, he writes on leadership, defines humility this way. He says, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources, or to use your influence for the good of others before yourself. It is a noble choice to put others before yourself, to give up your resources, to make sure other people are provided for before you are. This is humility with gentleness. We have to ask ourselves, what area of our lives are marked by humility and gentleness? And if we can't think of any area as a church that is marked by humility and gentleness, then we are doing it wrong. Because these are things that point us to a walk that is worthy of our calling. People know a fruit tree by the fruit that it produces. This is a fruit that should be produced in our lives. Paul goes on to say another way that we can walk worthy is to be patient and have forbearance. Patience is a characteristic of God Himself. And we have the privilege of living out that characteristic in our life. For us, this could be steadfastness in the face of suffering. The things that will mark us as Christians will be a a patience and a steadfastness in suffering. You know, I think too often people get hung up on the promises of God and they focus on the good things that God has promised us. The joy, the peace, the strength from God that comes from Him and Him alone. The fact that the Lord will fight for us as He has promised He will. And we forget about the fact that Jesus Christ promised us that we will suffer. We forget that that is a promise of God and we only look to the good things. And when we forget that we were promised that we will suffer, when hard times come, when trials come, we lose faith. We don't want to be patient in those things. We want to look to something to fill the void, to dull the pain. We want to look outside of the Gospel of Jesus Christ because we forgot that we were told we were going to suffer. When really what we need to do is say, you know what? Jesus said I was going to suffer. And the fact that I am suffering and going through hard times right now points me back to all of the other great promises that He has made because He is honest and true. He said I was going to suffer and I am suffering. Patience will mark our walk in our lives as we walk worthy. We will be patient knowing 
that God is in control. Even in our suffering. Even in the hardships. And as we do that, we reflect His glory. As we do that, we reflect the attributes of God in our life. The New Testament describes forbearance as a reluctance to avenge wrong. We bear with one another in love because that's what God has done with us. He, while we were sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. That's, that's forbearance. That's what we're called to do is to put up with one another's faults and idiosyncrasies because we have our own. We know we do. You may deny it, but stop lying to yourself. You have faults. This, this is a mark of a walk that is worthy. This is a mark of the Christian life. This is who we are in Christ. Lastly, we're to maintain unity. You heard that right. Maintain unity. We're already united. As a church, we are united. That may not sound like the truth to you. Because honestly, when you look at our world, the world is far from united. You even narrow it down a little bit, our country is not even united. Our church. But we're called to maintain unity. We may not see the unity that we have in the church, but it is a call that we have and a thing that we should be striving to do to walk worthy of the Gospel is to maintain the unity that God has put in the church. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Remember that you were at one time... I'm starting in verse 12 if you're writing this down. It says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, who you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. We have already been united through one decisive act of atonement. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are united together as a body of believers. This is why it is sinful to live a life of division, as Pastor Greg preached about last week. To live a life of divisiveness. God has united each and every one of us together. We are one and we are in one. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Listen to what Psalm 113 verse 1 says. Behold how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. We've already been united and God sees beauty in that. If only we could see the beauty in the unity as well. We've been united on all of these things. These are things that, that bring about Christian unity and we tend to look for ways to tear them down and to divide them. 
Because we put our own preferences above the church. We put our own desires and our own wants above the unity that we are called to walk in and maintain. We should be looking of how we can build one another up. How we can promote unity not only in our church, but in our communities. The surrounding areas. We should be, as believers, promoting unity. Not tearing it down. I think there are some practical helps uh, that I will go through rather quickly from Philippians chapter 2 of how we can be united and how we can maintain and promote unity. Philippians chapter 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by making by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also the interest of others. This section starts with, if there is any. That can be translated as, since there are these things. Some translations write it that way, but if if you're not happy with uh, textual variants and translation trans um, there's an argument called modus panis modus panis argument it is it, it means the way that affirms by affirming it means it's going to use an if argument that everybody knows is true so that the then argument is a logical byproduct of what we're saying if this then this everybody knows this is true so this is only logical That's what we're seeing here. That when Paul says, if this is true, if there's any of these things, which we all know that there is, then let's do this. It cannot be denied that this is an a logical argument. So we see here several things, um, and I'm going to just really quickly mention three of them, of how we can live out this to maintain unity. And so if you're keeping count, that makes this a seven-point sermon. Uh, I would be kicked out of most Baptist churches for that. Um, (laughs) First, we see that we should use the resources that we have. Uh, This is in verse 1 there. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if there are any of those things. These are resources that we have as Christians. That there is encouragement in Christ. And His Word. It is there for us. It encourages us. It promotes unity through His Word. There is comfort from His love that's displayed on the cross. We see that. We know that that is true. That His love is comforting. That He was willing to lay down His life for us right where we were. Empty-handed, as we sang about. Empty-handed, And we have that love poured out for us. And it's comforting for us. We have fellowship. Participation in the Spirit. We have fellowship in the Spirit. We are already united to Him. We were united to the Spirit and by the Spirit. We've already talked about that. And we have fellowship as believers. So to maintain our unity, we need to use these resources. The the encouragement from God's Word. The hope that we have in Him. The comfort from His love. The fellowship of the Spirit. But we also need to have the right attitude. 
We need to have the right attitude. We see in verse 2, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. When I read this, what I see is that Paul is calling us as believers to be about one thing. One thing is what we should be about. That one thing that we should unite around and constantly be about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what our church unites around and should be promoting in everything that we do. If this is what every church were about, every church would be united. But churches fall away from that. And they get hung up on the things that don't matter. And then they live a life of divisiveness, forgetting that we should be united on this one mind and one love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the last thing that we can do to help promote and maintain unity is to be humble and serve. To be humble and serve. He says, do nothing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. That is humility and service. That we are uniting around a need. We're looking to the interests of others. We are promoting this need and saying we are going to gather around this as a body of believers and we are going to, in humility, meet this need. These are all ways that we can maintain unity. But not all of us have experienced unity already. Not everybody in this congregation, definitely not everybody in this town, has experienced what it means to be united to the body of Christ. And the only thing that's keeping them from that is their hearing of the Gospel. Because how are they to know if they have not heard? And how are they to hear if we have not told them? When we unite around the Gospel, This is what we're going to do. We'll be in the community living it out and promoting it and telling the Gospel, sharing it with people. And I, if there's anybody here that doesn't know what that is and what it feels like, what it it means to be united to Christ, I encourage you not to leave here today without coming and talking with Pastor Greg or myself. We will pray with you. We will will spend time talking with you and, and telling you what it means to be united in Christ. This is what we are called to do to walk worthy. That we would be humble and gentle, patient and forbearance. And that we would maintain unity. So that we would be pleasing to God. We walk by faith in this. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You right now knowing that we can do nothing apart from You. We come to You completely empty-handed completely poor in spirit, realizing that we as a church bring nothing to the table. But You bring it all. Father, You give it all to us. Even as we speak about the humility and the patience and the gentleness, Lord, we know that it is a gift from You that we could even be humble. That we could even be patient. Father, as a church, we lay down our lives. We lay them down for You as an act of sacrifice, as an act of worship. Father, we lay down our lives and we pray that as we leave here today, that You would show us how we can live a life of faith outside of these walls. How we can impact this community with Your Gospel. 
Father, we pray for this community. We pray for the people in this community who do not know you, who are in desperate need of your love and the unity that comes with it, Father. Father, I pray that you would mobilize this congregation, mobilize these people who are hearing these words today to be out and proclaim the gospel, that people would hear the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would also lay down their lives as as an act of spiritual worship. Father God, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, that we would not walk apart from from divine truth any longer as we see in 1 John. We no longer walk in darkness. Father, we pray that as we leave here, you ordain each and every one of our steps and that we follow after you in all that we do. Right now, as we look to you in this next time of worship, as we worship you through our tithes and offerings, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart to give back to you just a, a portion of what you have given to us and that we would do it joyfully. And that you would take our sacrifice to you and and you would multiply it and use it to further your kingdom here in Collinsville and through the community and beyond that to the whole world, Lord. Father, we pray for that as the ushers come forward, that our hearts would just be poured out to you as sacrifice as we give back to you. And Father, we ask for your, your blessing on this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.